You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Today's scripture is from Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 22. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and, if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The word of God. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Uh, If you guys don't know me, my name's Dan. I get to serve as one of the pastors. And we're starting this new series that we uh, began last week. Pastor Larry dove into it called For Such a Time as This. As we're looking at this idea of different stories in the scripture. And some of the characters you might never even have heard of if you just normally read the Bible. Some a little bit more nondescript. Some you might have uh, be already familiar with. But basically certain strategic times in history that God captured the heart of some men and women. And for that time they were obedient and faithful to see what God would do. And you know as we think about the scriptures... Um, And don't worry, I don't got time to research this stuff. That's what Google's for. But I discovered there are over 700,000 words in the Bible. And depending on your translation, there's a little bit more. Some translations, they use a lot of words for the same thought. But around 700,000 words. And um, what that comes out to is a little over the first five Harry Potter books. The number of words. For some of you, that makes total sense now. You're like, oh, okay, that's a lot. Um, And the thing is, when you look at these 700,000 words, the people who make up many of them, a great majority, are people you're probably familiar with. People like um, David, uh, one of the, you know, one of the first kings of Israel. Um, People like Moses, maybe prophets like Jeremiah, um, apostles like Paul, um, gods like Jesus. You know, there's, there's like pretty significant characters listed throughout. And a lot of our attention naturally goes there. 
And these, all, all of these people were extremely important as God prominently used them for his purposes of redemption. But what's key for us here today, what I want us to consider, is that God, in many ways, for him to use all those really prominent people, um, there are continual stories. And sometimes they're told, and oftentimes there are many untold, of others who also played their part in a larger story. However small it might even seem to you and me, their actions were significant and long-reaching. And I would suggest the courage and the obedience of these folks were critical in allowing the story of God and his rescue plan, his deep love, to continue to move forward throughout history. And that's the story we're looking at today, this morning. As we're looking at these, a story of these two women, and you might have never even heard of them when Greg read the passage, Shifra and Pua. But we're going to see their courage in their obedience. And just give a little background before we dive into the actual passage. Um, what we have is through God's providence, and that's a real fancy word for God kind of knowing what's going on. His eyes are on it all, past, present, future. In his providence, the people of Israel, this tribe, small tribe of a family, they moved to this nation of Egypt during this time of famine. And it sounds like a really bad thing, but it was a part of God's plans at work continually. And we say providence because, again, it didn't look like something good was going on, especially when there were some evil circumstances. Part of the evil circumstances were you had this man named Joseph, and his brothers sold him into slavery, really because of a heart of jealousy. And some of y'all come from a rough family background, um, probably not as rough, rough as Joseph experienced. Deep hatred, deep pain, sold into slavery, taken to this land of Egypt as a slave. But God was always in the midst of it. And Joseph prospered. And he eventually rose into very high standing as one of the top leaders in this land of Egypt. And it benefited his family, who were all eventually brought there, to not just be fed physically, but to be restored. And they, they made roots there. They were transplants. And for a long period, the Egyptians and the Israelites dwelled together with relative harmony, at least that we're aware of. But things have now taken a different turn, and that's what we're looking at today, as Greg read. Look at verse 8. We see the introduction. It says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And this phrase, who did not know Joseph, means after hundreds of years, now you've got a new pharaoh. And, and he don't know who Joseph is. And correspondingly, he doesn't know the God who orchestrated all this. This pharaoh don't give a rip. All he sees is a bunch of foreigners who are growing and growing. And fear and suspicion has entered his heart. He doesn't know these people. He doesn't know if they got nefarious intentions. They're the other. And, you know, this is like even current events for us here. Like there's something about people you don't know. They look different. They eat differently. They've got different customs. You're just afraid. You're afraid. There's distrust. There's suspicion. And this king, this pharaoh, is, which is what was called for Egypt, his xenophobia, his fear of the foreigner... It led him to enact public policy, basically, driven by fear of the outsiders. He enacted laws, and they didn't need Congress to do this because he was Pharaoh. He said, my word is law. And just a side note, um, it's a good reminder for us that decisions that are made out of fear are not often of God. 
whether they're by the government, whether they're by churches, or even individuals, when we see decisions being made primarily by fear, often that is not always of God's will. But we see the resulting impact of this fear-driven mandate of this king. And, yo, he thought he was being smart. He's like, this will show them. We're just going to work them so hard, they ain't going to have time to have babies. All they're going to be doing is working and making the stuff. But we see differently. Look, look in verse 9. He said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Pharaoh, thinking he's so smart, he's like, let's work them. And they're like, having more babies. And they're getting stronger and bigger. And Pharaoh has more fear that comes on top of what he's already got. So these Israelite people... They suffered under systemic oppression of the land, yet numerically God blessed them, and they grew as a people. And Pharaoh, he meant to stifle this, but he was just stoking the fires. So Pharaoh, he recognizes, um, my decisions have not been very effective, so he's pushed to drastic measures, and he comes up with a revamped policy decision. And we see verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. I think it makes sense to us, right? Yo, man, we tried to work him to death, but that didn't work. Oh, let's track back. What's the source of this? Oh, well, if we get him real early on, there's no people. They can't be soldiers. They can't take us over. So if there's a boy, kill him, and they'll stop populating. And man, these are just a few short words in the context of larger scripture. But I want you to sit in that for a little bit. Feel the weight of this moment. And I'm sure the actual decision-making was longer, but feel the weight of this moment as we have described in scripture. And, And not to be overly dramatic, but I would suggest that though these women probably didn't even know it, History was hinging on this moment. History was at a certain crossroads based on this moment and the awaiting decision of these midwives. What would they do? And, and if I were in their place, I can't imagine it was going to be an easy decision for Shifra and Puad where they're like, okay, on one hand, um, you know, this is just wrong. You don't, you don't kill people to get rid of them, whether they're slaves or not. You don't do that, especially babies. That's just morally wrong. So we're going to tell Pharaoh, we cannot do this in our right conscience. Morally, this is, this is our stand. We've got to be courageous. And probably what would happen? He's like, okay, cool. <laughs> we'll kill you then. <laughs> and we'll kill your families. Cool, dig it? I, I mean, they're, they're not in positions of power. Or they go ahead and obey Pharaoh and they just wipe out this whole possible tribe of people. They were not in an easy circumstance here, but they made their choice. Look at verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And we see the fallout after that. (sighs) Courageous, right? Like if you were there, what would you have done? I don't think that's ever a fair question because you're not there and circumstances are different. But... As you hear the story, some of you might even have some realistic questions, right? Maybe you, know, you maybe even know your Bible well. 
and, and you ask questions of yourself, say, man, so what? Maybe I was in that situation. What do I do? Or maybe I'm watching, or maybe there's even something going on in my modern day that I'm kind of confronted with these morally ambiguous um, situations. Like, what's the appropriate response when the decisions of those in power, whether in, they're in government, my workplace, it, it seems to contradict what is right, at least whatever we determine is right based on what God seems to be saying. What do we do when those who are making decisions that are long-impacting seem to go against what God seems to say is the correct path to follow? What, what do we do when following the convictions of my heart would seemingly contradict the laws of the land? Or my workplace? Maybe that's more relevant for some of us. And some of us, we might even go to places like a Book of Romans. And, you know, usually when there's some sort of unrest or, or uh, protesting, um, a lot of people who know their Bible will go to Romans 13 and they'll say things like, well, the scriptures teach us this is how we should approach authority. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And it goes on to say, yo, people who are leading, even in government, whether they use the word God or not, they have been placed there by God because God's in control. So your mandate, if you follow Jesus, is to also follow what they say. So, for example, then people say, you should not be protesting the government as much as you disagree because you're supposed to follow the governing officials. Submit to them. And I want to say right here, I think that's appropriate wisdom. I think it's what Scripture teaches. We should humble ourselves and submit before those who have been, um, and for some of you, this is a real test of your faith because you're like, I don't think God's put them there. I, I, they're there. So in your heart, what does it mean to obey and submit to governing officials or bosses perhaps? But here's what I would also suggest and, and throw in there. Maybe there's a little wrench, right, for some of you who hold on to Romans 13 real hard. Um, I think we also got to read passages like that in context of the larger story of Scripture. We need to understand, yes, we submit to authorities, but we also have this large, bigger, meta-narrative story of kind of a revolution against evil and darkness. And in the larger narrative of Scripture, um, we have what I, I would suggest— is our North Star. If you want to know how you should live life, here's a good North Star kind of directional moment. And you see it in these midwives, their response. But the midwives feared God. If you need to come down to an operating basis of how you're going to live life, make decisions, conduct yourself, fear God. Fear God. And, and I want to unpack that for a moment because when I say fear God, and some of you came from churches like this, so we need to do some deconstruction. You think like um, scared of God, like he's hiding behind a corner with a big mallet like, and looks like a Bible and willing to just like whomp you on the head if you've done wrong. Like, oh, yeah, I fear God like I feared my dad, right, with that stick. That's how I fear God. Uh, I think we need a different understanding of what it means to fear God. That according to the scriptures, fearing God, and here's a real simple way to understand it, fearing God is living like God is real. And some of that's involved with some trembling. It should be. If, you, if God is who he says he is, there should be a little bit of, oh, okay, he's not just my, like, homie who's a little bigger than me. He's like God. Like, creator of all this, John, right? He's God. He's God and I'm not. 
But fearing God is living like, wow, he's not just present when I'm doing, like, say, a worship service at church. Or when I'm out feeding, say, the hungry. Or doing, like, quote-unquote spiritual stuff. But God's, like, omnipresent and omnipotent and all those big omni words. Like, he's everywhere. He knows everything. He sees it all. He knows it. He doesn't just see the stuff on the outside that we can all see about each other. He actually sees deeper even into the heart. He's aware of it all. It's all his. That's what living with the fear of the Lord is. Like, God knows it all. Thus, how should we now live knowing that God does know it all? And I think when we talk about fear of the Lord then, we're like, okay, so it's all about God. It's all his. He's the center of it all. And I'm a big fan of like God-centeredness. I'm one of those guys I actually think it's really appropriate when we say, you know what? You're not the main character of your story. God is. So everything should orient around him. Some of our problem is like we're like Mercury and we got the whole solar system going around us when God is meant to be the center and we rotate around him. He's our central point. But here's, um, I would say, a little downside of some of that thinking that I've observed. Some people who are like really God-centered, like appropriately, they'll then go to say, you know, and we're all ants. We are like, uh, it doesn't matter who we are. We're like dust. Like God has graced us to be able to be in his presence, but we should just be wiped out. Cause... But here's the thing. The Bible doesn't seem to, I mean, it gives some illustrations of the contrast between who God is and who we are. But we're made with much value, with much love. We're designed as seemingly with like impeccable intent that no person's a mistake and like a little bit bigger than an ant. But like created in the very image of God. God's now joking around when he's made human beings, men and women, in his image. So what I would suggest is if we are really serious about God's glory, if God is the center, if we're living in fear of him, if he's really the reason we exist, we cannot help but have a passion also for those who are made in his image. So having God at the center of our life, what it should mean a supremacy of God's centeredness in our life should mean a deep valuing of those he's made impeccably in his image, even as this world might have marred some of that. I mean, scriptures continually talk about it. It's not on the, past, it's not on the screen, but Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. I love this passage. It says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. What it's saying is, yo, if you're serious about God, you need to be serious about the rights of the least of these among us. You can't say, I'm all about God and not give a rip about those on the street. You can't say, I'm God-centered in my theology and have not have a single crumb for your neighbor who's hurting. It goes together. If we're centered on God, it expresses itself always in love for our neighbor. So if we, if we let the rubber meet the road, just like Shifra and Pua, oftentimes having this attitude towards others, advocating for the value of life, it will often mean opposition to the ways things currently are. Part of valuing the life of one another, and not just in this room, as people who follow Jesus, we don't just care about the people who are in this room, we care about everyone, because we believe everyone's made in the image of God. If we do that, if we commit to that, it will most likely mean standing in opposition to many of the things the way they currently are. Because y'all smart, you already know this, but 
Just because something's legal doesn't mean it's right. Just because something's legal doesn't necessarily make it right. So fearing God, it means fighting for those made in his image, even if it could cost you. Fearing God means advocating, defending, giving all you have for the sake of those that we believe are valuably made in the image of God. Uh, A few weeks ago, our family had the chance to do a little vacationing and and we got to stop by Cambridge, Maryland. If, and y'all close here in Baltimore, that's not very far. If you have not been to the Harriet Tubman Museum, you should do like a short, short day trip of it. Epic. If you, if you don't know who Harriet Tubman is, yo, your school system failed you. Because that's just, she's going to be on your money. You know that, right? But we know she was one of the primary conductors of the Underground Railroad that gave safe passage to slaves who were fleeing from slavery in the south, up north, in different places, even up into Canada. And Harriet Tubman, born in Maryland, Dorchester County, around near Cambridge. Can you believe that? She's like from, she's local. Born here, and she escaped. But her story is, she got escaped, but she couldn't just stay there and celebrate God. Say, wow, God, you are the deliverer. She had to go back and help others find the same passage she did. Epic woman of God. Epic woman of God. Loved God so much, she couldn't stay comfortable. She had to give herself. But y'all know this too, right? Because you're smart and you're cute, but you're smart. Under the law of the land, I mean, we all clap. and we're like, Give her some money. Like, give her face on the money. But you know that under the law of the land at that time, she would have been considered a criminal, right? You know that, right? No one was giving her applause. She was a criminal. She was breaking the laws. That's why it's underground. But she feared God. She feared God. I love one of her quotes. She says, God's time is always near. He set the North Star in the heavens. He gave me the strength in my limbs. Catch this. He meant I should be free. What she's saying is freedom is appropriate. What the law of the land is here in the south is evil and wrong. So for me to break the law is appropriate because that's what God intended. And that's what it means for me to fear God and help others to experience the same freedom. It's just a small example of so many instances throughout history. And sometimes I get overwhelmed when I just track it. But every milestone against injustice in in our history, every, like, a flag post that this is another like chopping down injustice. Every one of those throughout history, you know that it would have stood in opposition to the law or the overruling thought of the time. Every moment of injustice coming crumbling down, it went against something that was normal at the time, whether it was a law or thinking. So if we believe God is real, we fear him. If we fear him, then his worth is more significant than any other guiding principle in our life. And what that means then is we value the ones he values. I, I don't throw this out to shame any of us here because I'm talking to myself. I, have, I used to say some people are morons. Some people are idiots. Some people are incompetent. They're not just ugly in the body. They're ugly in the face. Like they, in the mind. That, I used to be like... And God, you know, when I started really pressing into this image of God thing that every single person made is in the image of God, it was humbling because I was like, I don't get to determine the value of another person. 
I don't get to say whether someone is worthy, whether I consider they are or not. I can have my judgment, but don't really give a rip in the big picture because God values every single person because they are made lovingly in his image. And I've had to humble myself because I, I can be judgmental. I can be angry. I can be lack of impatient. And God has said, have you prayed for that person? Because you know they're made of my image, right? I'm like, oh, come on, God, not right now. It's too early in the morning. No, you, you should, they're, they're made of my image too. I know you think your cute little babies are made, but they're, they're, they're made of my image just like your cute little babies. I'm, no! Okay. If we believe God is real, we value those who are made in his image. So what does that mean for us practically? Maybe some of you are like, Okay, you got Shifra and you got Pua and, yo, they had real choices. And, man, their, their consequences, you know, they had a big decision to make. But, yo, I'm not in front of, like, a pharaoh in my life. Um, I'm not having to make a life or death choice in my life. I'm, I'm just doing things in, in, in the big picture. Does my life really even matter? You know, I mean, I want to be faithful. And um, two things I would say. One, don't underestimate the position God has placed you in. Don't underestimate the place, position, the city, the workplace, the family, the neighborhood, whatever. Don't underestimate the position God has placed you in. Because even if you don't feel like you have much platform or voice, look at the story here. We talking about Shifra and Pua, and I know they got names, so it seems like they're important. They were not very important in that culture. Midwives, you're like, oh, that was a lofty vocation that these women discovered for themselves. Nah, not in Egypt. They were like on the borders of like society. Most likely in that time to be able to have a child was considered a certain sex. So a lot of times midwives were those who might not be able to biologically have children, so they would be midwives. But they were cast on the far reaches, reaches of the value of society. So these were not important women culturally, but they used where they were. They used whatever voice God gave them wherever they are to seek his glory. And I want to encourage you, wherever you are, the one common thing is you have connections with people. Wherever you are, you can advocate for people wherever you are. But having said that, I also want to, I want to throw this in there. Um, I want to encourage you, seek greater positions of influence. Seek to be a greater influencer. And I know sometimes in church, you might get used to people telling you, yo, you need to die like a maggot. So you should humble yourself and never do anything good. Give God all the glory. I'll stick with that last part. Give God all the glory. But that doesn't mean you be nothing. What, what I actually think it means is God has blessed and gifted many of you. I would, I would suggest all of you. Some of you just haven't seen it fully yet. But God has blessed and gifted you with so many amazing gifts, so many wonderful talents, so many privileges of opportunity. He's put you in places that some people would dream of. And what I'm going to tell you to do is, yo, kill it. Kill it wherever you are, whether it's a student in your workplace, whether it's in your corporation, whether it's in your neighborhood, whether it's in your special pursuits, your interests. Kill it. Be the best you can be. But not for your own glory, but so that you can build up a platform to be able to make decisions. Because the reality in our world, who makes a lot of decisions? Those in power. So I'll just be straight I would love if, like, a large percentage of you just after one of these sermons, like, Holy Spirit, just, you know, and, and you come up afterwards, Pastor, I, I'm called to be in ministry. 
Yo, I need to be full-time minister. I'm like, yo, let's go. I'm right there with you. Let's do it. But here's the thing. More and more, as much as I want to see that, so I don't want to stifle that. That's good. But I want to see people in this room who are not necessarily being pastors because we need people who are in prominent positions all over society and culture. We need the sharpest teachers. We need sharpest people in law. We need the sharpest people in construction and development. We need the brightest of the brightest in fields like medicine. We need the best of the best because oftentimes there is something that comes with your position that you are able to make decisions that other people not, might not have the privilege to be able to make. So kill it. Work hard. But surrender your heart to God, not for yourself. But with this heart, God, give me more so that I might be able to do more and have even more position. That when I say something, people are like, who's she? Who's she? Who's that guy? They're like, oh, oh, they, we got to listen to what they say. Oh, they, they know what they're talking about. There's some privilege there. Be excellent, not for your own stature, but for the influence that it might bring you to help other people's lives. I know politics gets a weird rap and everyone thinks politics are shady and shysters and they're all bad. Yo, one of my prayers, especially in our city, is we see more and more excellent women and men being raised up to lead in politics from the very grassroots local level all the way to nationally. Like we need people who their biggest fear is God. That when they're making policy decisions, when they're thinking over a budgetary items for Baltimore City, they're not just being guided by uh, PACs and by different influential people. They're being guided by a fear of God himself. And thinking, what does it mean to use this position that God has given me for the value of those who need my voice for them? So maybe this is the day that some of your mayor, mayor will start... Uh, launch got started, right? You're like, okay, on Sunday, October, or September 1st. I don't know. Whatever God has placed you in, be excellent, but so you can have a voice to advocate for those who might not have a voice. Second thing, um, the valuing of life, it can take on many different forms. What it means to value life, it can take on many different forms. So I think it would just be like tone deaf to look at the story and not have some application of, say, the preborn, for example. I think there's just, it's just a nat, like part of valuing life is advocating for those who don't even have a voice yet, literally, physically, outside of the womb, to advocate and fight for that. And, and I think that's appropriate. If some of you feel that conviction, you need to run with it. Like, run with it hard, whether it's advocacy, whether it's your generosity, whether it's your time, whether it's your voice, run with it. But guys, I also want to uh, encourage and challenge you to broaden what it means to value life. Fight for the unborn, but as one pastor said, from the womb to the tomb, right? What does it mean for every person who breathes uh, a breath of God's life in their lungs to know that we value them and we fight for them? I'll just throw an example in there. Uh, maybe this is relevant for a lot of us here. Um, when we think about valuing life, I know for myself, this is true. Maybe some of you feel this. It's not always think about valuing the life of the people that you work next to every day or valuing the life of people in your dorms for some of you who are students. Like valuing the people that God has placed more of your time than anyone else. Like you see some people more than you see your family. 
Like, what would it mean to value those that God has placed intentionally, knowing he's a God of providence? He's working it all together. So the place you're working at, the place some of y'all are like, yeah, this is my safety school. That's why I'm here in Baltimore. No, God has placed you here for a purpose. Like, why am I around the people I'm around? Why am I around that weird person in my dorm? Why do I got that weird cubicle person down the hall who's got strange cat memes on their computer? Why, why do I got all this? Because God wants you to be where you are to value the life of those who are in your place. To look at them with the same eyes that God will see them. I'll put this here. One of the best ways you can value the life of someone else is you don't just spend your time working with them, but you invite them to be part of your life even outside of the workplace. Because there is something significantly powerful when people feel you're not just with them because you have to be, but you want to be. And when they start to question, why would you want to be with me? They're like, they start to get this idea that when you look at them, in your mind, you're saying, your life matters. Your life matters. Why would I want to spend my free time with you and not just hide in my car during lunchtime by myself? Because your life matters. Why would I go out to happy hour with you and, and, and spend time with you after work when I'm tired and I could go do anything else and just like zone out on my Netflix? Because your life matters. Because I want to know your story. Because I want to involve myself. But I want you to also be part of my life. Be part of my family. Be part of my friends. Because when we invite people into our lives, we're saying a clear statement that your life also matters. And this, that might not feel earth-shattering. I mean, oftentimes, courageous moments of like a midwife life, it doesn't seem that momentous at the time. Like a midwife is actually a really appropriate kind of metaphor for what it means for us to value life. Because what's the purpose of a midwife? To deliver a good birth, to deliver a happy birth. No one sees a baby being born and say, midwife, midwife, you are epic. Yo, midwife, you're amazing. Yo, midwife, you're crushing it. They're like, midwife? Oh yeah, you're here too. The goal is to produce a healthy life a healthy birth. In the same way for us, if we view ourselves in that way, who has God placed you into their life to perhaps even be like a midwife role, to be there, to walk through some of the struggles, walk through some of the pains, walk through some of the fears about faith and life and be there with them. Say, I'm holding your hand. I'm not letting you go. We're in this together. And be there to celebrate new life coming. That's a picture of faith. That's a picture of faith. But no one's going to celebrate a good midwife. Ah, you're like, except for the uh, mother. Mother's going to celebrate. But everyone else is like, who are you? You don't get a gift. So again, what did I say was uh, the number of words in the Bible? Anyone remember? Around 700,000. Five Harry Potters. That's what you remember, right? Five Harry Potters. I'm not good at math. But it seems like from what I can tell, there's about... 150 or so words devoted to these two women, Shifra and Pua. And again, I'm not good at math, so I had to pull out a calculator. Yo, my calculator couldn't even do the math. It just put a big E there because it was like too many decimals. Like how much 150 is part of 700,000? They're not that significant if you look at the overall big picture of the Bible. But did did you catch this crazy thing? This pharaoh who got so much power, who everyone's afraid of. Um, He was powerful at one time, but now, yo, we don't even know his name. His name's Pharaoh. I mean, he doesn't even get a name in the Bible. 
Well, we do know the names of these two women, right? We know Shifra. We know Pua. Generations after generations of those studying the scriptures have seen these courageous, obedient women who are just available to stand against the powers of the day, say, we're going to do what we can to obey God and fear him first. And we're going to be a little sly too. You, got, you caught that, right? The story that follows this and the last verse we read was about put the babies out into the water in the reeds. You caught that, right? That was leading right into the story that gets most of the pub in this, chapter, in this whole book about this man Moses. Yo, Moses got movies made after him, right? That's significant. And if you're in the Bible and they make movies about you, you are a big, you are a heavy hitter. You're a big boss, right? So Moses get all the movies. But you know what? Moses don't happen if you don't got shit from Pua. Moses ain't not a baby out on some reed boat if you don't got Shifra and Pua. Their obedience, their courage, their desire to say, God has given us this weak position in life as a midwife. No one thinks much of us. We're not very respected. We're definitely not getting paid anything. But we are going to do what we can with what we've been given for the sake of fearing God. And they didn't know it was going to lead to Moses. But it led to Moses. We often underestimate what our small acts of obedience will lead to. Uh, you know, when we had the teachers up front, I, I, got, I got to catch myself from getting too emotional. But when I was seeing the teachers up front, man, there's a weak spot in my heart for teachers. I was just sharing actually the other day that I think if I hadn't gone to the pastoral ministry, I think I might have gone into teaching because I just value it so much. <laughs> But I, like, I was thinking, I'm, I'm, I know I look young and sexy from where you are, but I'm getting a little older. But like, I got some crazy old memories. Like I can remember fifth grade. I can remember fifth grade going into school and I, was, I had a speech impediment. I was like a shy, like introverted, really awkward kid. I remember going into fifth grade just hating life, not knowing I hated it yet, but kind of hating life. And man, I had this teacher, his name is Mr. Parsons. Man, six foot three, ex-football player, like beastly man. And I had never, and again, I'm not hating on women teachers. I love women teachers. But I'm saying for me at the time, I needed a strong male figure who was teaching me, investing in me. And I could tell that he knew I was a little awkward. He would reach out to me in, in, in different ways. And he was that support in a, in a lot of means. And, you know, it's like how many years after that, I still remember it was like it was yesterday. The impact of small acts of just loving someone because they're made in the image of God. Now, I don't know if that was his motive, but all I know is he exhibited it pretty well. So don't discount the small things of obedience God is calling you to follow as you fear him first. Again, let that be your main driving thing, that God is the center of your life. I mean, I'm going to obey the law as I can, but I'm also going to fear God. I'm going to obey him. But if I'm obeying him, that means loving the people God has placed around me with everything that I have, not just because they're lovable, but often because they're not, but because they're made in the very image of this great God that I fear. So as we go into the table here, if you're a Christian, maybe before you come up to the table, I can ask you, as we come up here to remember, but before you jump into remembering, maybe you can come up and maybe you think, if I'm a Christian, how is God going to use you to be a midwife for someone else? Maybe for you, you can think of one person in your life. Maybe it's one person. 
Who, who is God leading you to act like a midwife for? Walk with them, love them, value them. Who is God going to use you to remind your life matters? Because I know sometimes the temptation is to walk around our campuses, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, and feel like everyone's got everything together. Yo, they're killing it. Yo, their life is great. But man, just talk to me because I talk to people continually who look so good on the outside, but inside they're, they're just being crushed, feeling so out of spirits, feeling like no one cares, sometimes to the extent like if I disappeared, would it even matter on this earth? And to just tell them your life matters. Don't discount that. But I want to also invite some of you, maybe you're not a Christian and you're here and you're exploring. And I want you to know your life also matters. And it's not just because some pastor saying that because that's what I'm supposed to say. But the reason I can say your life matters is because I look at this table. And I remember the one who we remember when we come to the table. His name's Jesus. And he had his body broken. And he had his blood shed. But before that, he gave this as a living illustration to his followers to say, eat of this bread. Drink of this cup. Remember my great sacrifice for you. Because the thing about Jesus that's amazing is we got Shifra and Pua, and they are legit heroes to me. Yo, I'm so glad I studied this passage because they, like, have risen way up in my hall of, like, my top ten. Right? They're up there because they were obedient and courageous, and, and they advocated for these, all of these lives that were come. But you know what? They advocated... But there's a difference. Jesus also advocated for lives to come, and he would give himself. But here's the thing. He didn't just advocate. He advocated with his very life. The way that he advocated for those were to come. The way he gave people a path into life like the midwives. He was the very holy midwife, yet his life was the path. He gave himself. And, and if you're here, and if you're not a Christian, and maybe you've even wrestled with does my life really matter? And this is not a self-help pep talk, but like, do I really matter in the big, bigger cosmic world? Yeah! Because you have a Savior who would give his life so that you could also have life and be part of this family. Of course your life matters. And I want to invite you today, if, that's, if you just want to talk about it, or maybe you could come up to the table, take a piece of that bread, dip it in the cup, and say, I want to know this Jesus who would give his life so I could be part of his family as well. So let's stand together. And again, before we sing and just rush into the elements, before we even come to the table, if you're a Christian, stand there. And before you come up, really, who is God putting into your path to love and to value in their life? And I'll be real here. It might be someone you don't even like, and they just pop into your head. You're like, what's that? I would say maybe that's the Holy Spirit. But God's calling you to love them. Not because they're lovable, but because they made in his image. If you're not a Christian, I don't know how else to express this. You mean so much to God. He sees the pain you've been going through. He sees your wounds. He sees your deep sickness in your soul. He sees all the ways you question sometimes, would it really matter? Would anyone even give a, give a darn if I weren't here? He sees that. He knows that. And if you ever need any evidence that he cares for you, look at this thing called the cross. Look at the table. Remember his great sacrifice because he has deep love for you. And because of that, we have deep love for you. And I want to invite you to know who this Jesus is. Heavenly, Heavenly Father, we thank you 
You're so good. I confess, Lord, my heart gets real hard. I don't have much patience for people. I'm not, sometimes I'm not really inspired to want to be a midwife for someone else. I just want people to take care of themselves. But you remind us the greater call you've given us because you didn't leave us like that. You gave us life. You ushered us through. And now in the same way, would we live for that in courageous, obedient ways that maybe no one else will know, but we know is making a dent in history. Help us to be faithful with whatever you've put in front of us. We can't change the whole world, but we're never called to. You just give us our little place that we're to be in and to love those around us. So help us to do that in your power and your spirit. Help us, Lord, to be reminded of the great Jesus, the great midwife who ushered us into life, but through his own very sacrifice, conquering sin and death. And will we come with joy to be reminded of the great call we've been given. So we thank you, Lord. So I want to invite you to pray, sing, come up to the table, receive the elements, whatever you need to do to respond to how God is speaking to you.